should be able to get it done in 45 minutes or so. But turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Uh, I have preached this chapter many, many times. Um, I don't know that I've ever been so emotional in writing a lesson out of this text as I was with this one. Uh, so I guess it's a comfort to know that there's less in the room to cry in front of than what I originally thought there would be. Uh, but do pray for our members who are missing and, and those who are traveling. Continue to pray that uh, the Lord will bring us back together before the end of the year and we would have that opportunity of comfort one with another. We looked this morning in the Lord's ministry study at Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. And our text will be verses 1 through 44 of John 11. Uh, but before we read it, I just want to deal with some of the, the context of what we're looking at here. Logistically for this text, uh, as we're trying to lay everything out chronologically, uh, it's really hard to decipher exactly when this would have taken place in Dr. as far as in reference to the events we've been looking at in Dr. Luke. So I want to explain just a little bit of why A.T. Robertson, uh, Scroge, and myself all agree that this is where it should be. We know that after Luke 10 is where it should be because that is where we read the Lord's first meeting of Mary and Martha. So it certainly wouldn't have made any sense for us to have this story of Mary and Martha before he's first met them. Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, you might remember, says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now I could have just told you that's where that was, but it's important that we hear the only other uh, reference we have to these folks is we're going to see quite a bit more of them here. It's also important to note that we see the Lord coming into their lives before they have a dire need from, for Him. And this is a very godly formula. Uh, similarly, it happened last year that at this time we were in Florida meeting the Hillies really for the first time, intimately sitting in their home and praying with them. And then four months later, there was a dire need that we got to be available to them for great comfort. Uh, and it's very, very similar. We also know that what happens here in John 11 took place before the healing of the ten lepers because at that time Jesus was at the border of Samaria and Galilee en route back to Jerusalem. Luke 17, verse 11. This is the next verse from what we just left off with last Sunday. reads as follows. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So this is the third and last time it's recorded that Jesus raised to life one who had died not himself, but the third and last time before himself that he does this. It's likely the Lord interrupted his ministry in Perea, which is where we've seen him up until Luke 17, verse 10, to come and answer this call from these two sisters that, according to verse 5, he had a great love for. Let's look at our text, John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And I do intend to read all 44 verses that we have laid out for today, so bear with me. It says here, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. 
When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you might mark verse 3 and verse 5 as proof that the Lord's capable of an emotion. And we've been looking at this in uh, the incarnation study, which we'll uh, go back into in about 45 minutes. These are emotions that he's capable of. He's 100% man, 100% God. Verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. So again, in verse 7, where it says that he, he abode two more days, it's likely that area in which he's been in, in Luke 14, 15, 16, and Luke 17, verses 1 through 10, that Perean ministry, that's likely where he abode for at least two more days. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after he saith unto them, after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless let us go unto him. And again, if you mark your Bibles, you might mark verse 15. We now have the purpose of the miracle we're about to bear witness to in the text. Verse 16, then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, which does not mean doubter, it means twin, unto his fellow disciples, he says, let us also go, that we may die with him. I didn't say he didn't doubt, I just simply said Didymus doesn't mean doubt. Verse 17, then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met with him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And uh, the Jews, in verse 31, the Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Verse 32, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And you might 
uh, note real quickly that verse 32 lines up pretty well with verse 21 where her sister said the exact same thing. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. We might note here that those that are groaning with her, it was a tradition of the Jews to have mourners. These were folks that literally were, uh, I'll say employed, I don't think they were likely paid, but they were, they're employed to come in and mourn with the family and to weep. And, and the text in other places says bemoan. This is an open wailing. Uh, it was a weird way of comforting the family. It was a traditional way to comfort the family. But these weren't likely all family members. They were likely people of the community that came out to do such thing. And we'll see evidence of, of, of how the Lord treats them in just a moment. Verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And Jesus saith, uh, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. There's some verbiage that's very confusing for us today. When we hear the crowd say, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind in verse 37 have caused that even this man should not have died? We need to understand that Jesus didn't come to conquer the time in which we will die in the flesh. He came to conquer death. He came to steal the sting, to steal the victory from death itself. It was required that Lazarus die here. For the benefit of the church. This is what we, we, I had mentioned marking in verse 15. Jesus was glad about that. We might say that's awful. We've got the wrong starting point. He did not come. He did not die on the cross. The purpose of his earthly ministry was not to keep us alive in these bodies one minute longer than we were destined to. We are absolutely going to die. Here's the question. What comes next? That is on the mind of the Savior here. He's glad that Lazarus died. He knows Lazarus, and Lazarus knows him. Look over in John 12, verse 2. After this is all resolved, and the crowds disperse, there's a supper. They made him a supper, and Martha served, which we know of Martha from what we just read in Luke 10, is what she does. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Lazarus had a spot at the supper table. Amen. 
I'm reminded of what we read last week in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Without controversy, this means without doubt, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. Jesus says in verse 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And we read in verse 37 that some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? He laid out a very simple truth. Believe on me and live. It's a very similar truth that we've been reading on our Wednesday night study. Joseph said what? This do and live unto his brethren. When he held Simeon back and sent them to go get Benjamin, he said, this do and live for I fear God. Jesus lays out a very simple truth as well. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he doesn't just leave it there. He connects it to the people he's talking to. He connects it to the hearers. Believest thou this? Art, art thou stirred up? Is this real in you? Are you connected to this text? It's a simple truth laid out by God in the person of Christ Jesus. And the disbelief of mankind responds with, why did he let him die? Why did he let him die? Lazarus, I've mentioned, I've, I've taught from this text a lot. I believe Lazarus is the most relatable character in all the Bible to every born-again believer. In our text, we see that Lazarus is dead. No, not kind of dead, not almost dead, not close enough to death that Jesus could retrieve him. He's dead. He did not die as a result of sickness. Pay attention to the text. It doesn't say he died as a result of sickness. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of this, it says that he wasn't sick unto death. He died as a result of sin. Uh-oh, the preachers found a sermon. Yeah, he died as a result of sin, and so will we. Everything that has lived shall die because of Genesis 3 where man has fallen. It's not just a religious requirement. It is required of nature as the penalty for sin. It is our just earnings for our sin that we die. Verse 4, the sickness is not unto death. The sickness was for the glory of God. He died because of sin. As a dead man, Lazarus did what dead men do. What we all have done when we were yet dead in our trespasses. He stunk. He stunk. He was rancid. Verse 39. Her, her own brother, she says, he stinketh. Four days. All he could do while he was dead was lie in the tomb and stink. My dad used to work at a cemetery and dig graves. Did any of them come out and help you? They just pop out of the casket and say, I'll help you out. It's for me. All a dead man can do is stink. How long does it take for a dead man to stink? I pulled this. I'm glad you asked. I pulled this from a medical website. Within 24 to 48 hours, a body begins to smell from, uh, but but smell from death. But decomposition begins literally within four minutes after a person dies. The process is literally referred to as autolysis or self-digestion. Still think there's anything good in this old body? This body was intelligently designed even after death 
to take care of itself. Amen. Within the first five days, Lazarus' internal organs would have decomposed and his body would have begun to bloat. This is likely the point between four and five days where this was starting. A blood-containing foam would have leaked out of his mouth and nose, which is why they put the napkin on the face to absorb those fluids. Remember, beloved, this is the most relatable character in the Bible for the born-again believer. He's doing what only a dead man can do. Left to himself, he would have only gotten worse with rigor mortis stiffening the muscles and small blisters appearing on his organs and skin surfaces. The skin would begin to loosen. And these blisters would leak enzymes that produce gases, causing the body to double in size, and the smell would cause for insects to swarm. Yeah, I know the description in the text is awful. When you start looking into what happens to the body after death with just four days, it's worse. So the scripture was very almost gentle in its delivery of the fact that he was dead four days and he smelled bad. But when we study biology, we begin to understand why there was an odor. The organs would then liquefy as well as the muscles and skin, leaving only hair, bones, and cartilage to remain. The final stage of decomposition would leave only the skeleton, an empty framework that once held life, left helpless to contain it. It would remain so, lifeless for all eternity until the bones themselves crumbled away. Remember, beloved, this is the most relatable character in the Bible for the born-again believer. I know we all want to be Samson, Solomon, David. But every born-again believer in this room, every born-again believer in this world, before Jesus came upon them, before salvation was gifted unto them, were dead in trespasses and sins. And they were as this dead man, they stinketh. They rot. They get worse. No, Lazarus was not sick unto death. Lazarus was a sinner. Just like me. Just like you. Once he was a vibrant and healthy man with dreams, with aspirations. He might have been in the room trying to settle those disputes between his two sisters over whether Mary should be serving or sitting at the feet of Jesus. Once he knew joy and sorrow. But now for four days he only knew the process of decay, set in motion by his own sin nature. His entire space of living, Lazarus was helpless to stop the death that was coming. If allowed to continue in death, he'd be incapable of bringing back the life he once knew. As incapable as the soul of that certain rich man that we talked about a few weeks ago, who awoke after death to find himself tormented in the flame for all eternity. There is nothing significant about this body of Lazarus. Jesus has already proven throughout his whole ministry that he could heal the body. And the tomb over yonder is now the soul of Lazarus. It's not the soul of Lazarus. It's not the soul of Lazarus, but it's just the body. It's just that skeletal framework. It's just the flesh breaking down as it's been caused to depart. The work Jesus set to perform in this, uh, in this text was specifically for his church. John 11, verses 14 through 15. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Let's think of the context for a minute. Thomas, who's, I think, ill-labeled as a doubter, 
says, we go in there at sure death. They sought to stone you. Jesus says, we must go. And then by the end says, all right, let's all go. Let's all die. But in this situation, they also hear their master say, Lazarus, the one who we are going in to, to be a comfort for, is dead. And he follows it up with, I am glad. So now we've got disciples with the mindset of, we probably shouldn't go, who have now heard the purpose of their going is, is changed dramatically. Lazarus is now dead. And our master seems glad about it. Don't think for a moment these disciples weren't humans like us. That they didn't wrestle with, should I get up and go to church? Or should I get up and go to work? Should I get up and go into Samaria where we might get stoned? They have flesh and bone. They have weak minds just like us. And they hear all of this. And then he says, it's for you that we go. Think about how selfish it now feels that you didn't want to make this trip, but this trip was all for you, dear church. Think about how that probably would have felt. He taught them what it was to follow. Remember the last four chapters of Luke that we've been teaching through? 14, 15, 16, 17. All on discipleship. And then that latter part in the start of Luke 17 was on the responsibility of the church toward those followers, toward those little children, towards those young, new believers who were pursuing and following after Christ. He dealt with scoffing Pharisees and scribes for many of our previous lessons. He showed them that he had the power to repair the body, the power to heal the mind, and the power to lead. Now he was set to illustrate the Father's control over death itself. We, knowing how it ends, might consider this the greatest lesson of all. Because what we read in John 11 is almost a, 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 a foreshadowing of what's coming in that Passion Week. Almost a foreshadowing. But there's a difference, isn't there? See, with Lazarus and his sisters, there's mourners, there's comforters. There's those that have gathered around the family to support them. Those that gathered around that even somewhat mock Christ because he's dead. What's he going to do? Why didn't he come sooner? Because he could have probably stopped this guy from dying. They sound like they believe, but they mock God. And this is not like Christ in the fact that he had no supporters around him as he went to Calvary. As he went to Calvary, what did he hear? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. As he was examined outside the walls in which he was examined in, he heard, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And no, beloved, it wasn't the mocking Pharisees, the mocking scribes, it wasn't the Sadducees, it was the Jews. It was his own beloved people in which he would have gathered them around like hens, the Scripture says. They're the ones chanting for days during his examination before Pontius Pilate and all the others who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, until their voices were hoarse, until they couldn't shout it out any longer. You still think there's anything redeemable in this whole body? You think you wouldn't have done the same? Our flesh cries out for him to be crucified. Though it is a detestable thing, it was required. If he wasn't crucified, we would not have been saved. We could not have been redeemed. Death for those following Jesus was the ultimate end to be feared. No doubt even the disciples still feared death. Their entire culture 
our entire culture still fears death. Oh, we like to talk light about it. But what do we do with our senior citizens that are so close to death? We kind of quarantine them off, don't we? We kind of get them out of sight. It's not because they're detestable. It's because death is. It's because there's not a person in this room and community that wants to be close or near or thinking about death. And it's the same here. It was as a stinger to life and that it came quickly and mostly without warning. Once it penetrated the flesh of life, its toxins would run throughout the body until it won the ultimate victory. Death won because we are corruptible as a result of the fall in the garden. Death won because we are mortal and susceptible to it. We cannot overcome such an enemy on our own. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 through 57, that this corruptible, talking about us, our persons, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the living lesson they were experiencing outside the tomb, and, and for the disciples, the entire journey to the tomb. Who'd have thought, I mean, I, I love to think about John 11 in different ways. Who'd have thought that these disciples would soon be longing for the time in which they were in that Perean ministry, getting scoffed by Pharisees and scribes and snares all about them. Remember that hard talk in Luke 17 where he talked about them being the, that, that stick that would trip the snare and he was warning them against it? Who'd have thought they'd long for that? Because now they're traveling in a territory where they might be stoned to death. Territory that they're going in for a lesson for themselves. And Jesus stands with all power and with all faith and he shouts over the volume of the death toll, Lazarus, come forth! In verse 43. And he is heard. Jesus was part of creation, was he not? He was there. John 1 says he bore witness of it. We see in Genesis 1 he was involved instrumentally in it. And we know in Ephesians he was... Uh, given the book of life before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is old, y'all. He's been around for a long, long time. And the power, not only of his, of his voice, because if it says in Scripture, he shouted. I mean, you could imagine that still with meekness, which means power under control, he could have shattered the mountains with a sheer volume. But the power is not in the volume. The power is in the words. If he had simply said, come forth, then it's not outside of imagination to think that every dead person would have come forth at the calling of the creator of the universe. He specifically said, Lazarus, come forth. He's heard over the countless distances between life and death. He's heard over the screeching of countless doubters in the crowd as they gather religiously to wail and to mourn. He's heard over Lazarus' own sister who whispers in the, at the feet of Christ, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Why would I say he's heard over that? Because that's doubt. 
He's heard more clearly by the Father than any of the sins in Lazarus' life, so clearly, in fact, that they are utterly removed as far as the east is from the west. What is heard instead is, Father, he is mine. You have given him to me. He is in my book of life. He's heard above the decomposition of Lazarus's ears. The life of the ear is a very delicate balance of pressures within and without. And yet, this was likely beginning to break down in those four days. Lazarus doesn't hear a muffled voice, nor even an indiscernible sound. He hears the command of his master to come forth. Nothing will restrain Lazarus' body now. He is compelled to move, sure, but the body was in its natural process of breaking down, an, an unholy process of death that it was commanded to follow as the curse was pronounced upon man by God the Father Himself in the garden in Genesis 3. And it now has a new command. Come forth. Live. If you're here and you're born again, this is your command now. You are not called to hide behind some stone in a cave. You are not called to pretend that you don't know life. To act as though you do not know Jesus Christ. You are called to come forth. What do we see? I know verse 45 to the end is in our text. But what we see from verse 45 to verses 4 or 5 in the next chapter of John is a man who lives. Be alive and come at your master's call. He was not less dead. I, if I establish firmly the point that he was most certainly dead at the beginning, then you should understand he's most definitely alive at the end. He's no longer dead. Tnesco is that word. He's no longer inanimate, without life. He's no longer decomposing. He no longer stinks. He no longer needs the napkin upon his face that was there to absorb the fluids oozing out of his very pores and orifices. He is alive. He was not acting of his own volition, waiting for someone to call him. Does anybody care about me? He's not dead. But he was dead behind the tomb. What can a dead man do? Can a dead man resist God's voice? Can a dead man put up a fight or a wrestle against light shown into his heart for the first time? How alive was he? Look in John 12 now, the first three verses. We see that Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. He was as restored as Joseph's brethren's money, beloved, that we just talked about on Wednesday. He was restored as new. It didn't cost him a thing. It was all grace and power of God. He was loosed and made as a witness. Look at verse 45 of John 11. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Lazarus' own experience was as a witness to the world. It is for us today. He fellowshiped with Christ. 
He would even feel persecution of it. Look at verses 9 and nine through 11 in John 12. Much people, the Jews therefore knew that he was there, speaking of Jesus. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Look at that verse. It doesn't say, but the chief Pharisee, the chief scribe, doesn't say some Roman official, some Egyptian pharaoh consulted that they should put Lazarus to death. No, the chief priests, the leader of religion in the world for them that day, one of the leaders, consulted that they ought to slay Lazarus to put to rest the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You still think there's anything redeemable in your old body? I'm the smartest in the room. Who is it? Is there anything redeemable about you? Anything at all? This was man's inclination. Nay, not just man, but religious man's inclination. Let's kill Lazarus. We just saw in the entire John 11 that it was the intent of God himself that this sickness would come about to start the church in the direction of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that he experienced death as a result of his sin, that the church would be blessed in the witnessing of his conquering death at the voice of Jesus Christ. A great miracle happens in the church. And what does religious man say? Kill him. Squash it like a bug. Put the fire out. It's better that they wonder. It's better that they wander like the Israelites. Let's give them an evil report. Lazarus raised? I don't know. He's dead. If he's raised, why is he dead? This is the result of religion. This is the result of religion. And beloved Baptists, it's not just all of the, uh, the other so-called religions of the world. It can be Baptist too. When we get so religious about what we've been called to do, that we lose sight of the fact that we serve a living God. He's not done. He's still working even this very hour. And what does he call for us to do? Even now, as the signs of the times show that the end is nigh, we are called to look up, be found watching and working. In verse 39, and it's just me preaching today, so I'm going to keep going. In verse 39, Jesus commanded they remove the stone. The word stone is lithos in the Greek, which has been also translated as a stumbling stone or a rock of offense or a millstone elsewhere, including the text we looked at last Sunday, where a millstone should be tied about the neck of one who would cause an offense to a new believer, and they should be cast into the lake. They use the same word there. The phrase is often used in the Bible as something that is confounding or in the way of knowledge. For Lazarus, Jesus commanded this confusion to be gone. Remove the rock. The offense and oppression was to be removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. Jesus left no doubt. John 8, 36. He left no doubt that if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Lazarus was not killed by the chief priests, though they desired it. The chief priests certainly had the ability to make that happen. They exercised it quite often in the text here. 
But he was not gone back into slavery. And even if the chief priest himself had found Lazarus and slit his throat and put him to death himself, he did not steal the everlasting life granted unto Lazarus from Christ Jesus. It cannot be lost, stolen, or taken away. Verse 43 and 44, Jesus commands with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto him, Loose him. Loose him and let him go. It's interesting wording here. As again, we turn to the Greek and we see this phrase, let him, is me, which can also be translated forgive, forsake. Lay aside, leave, let alone, let be, let go, let have. Omit, put away, or remit. Why would Jesus need the crowd to loose him and let him go if Jesus was able to give him life? Jesus wasn't talking to the crowd. Jesus was speaking directly to Satan. This man's not yours. Let him go. Jesus is talking to death. Let him go. Restrain him not. He's been forgiven. Has the Savior commanded as such for you, beloved? What excuse have we to live in this world as though we've been commanded to lay down when we've been commanded to rise and stand and go forth? Jesus Christ commanded every move Lazarus made. Apart from him, he could do nothing but continue in the uniform of a dead man in his own stench and servitude. John 15, 5, he could do nothing without Jesus. I ask you as we close, once again, Jesus says in verse 26, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Verse 37, some of them said, Could not this man which, hath, which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And we said at the beginning, this was a simple truth laid out by God in the person of Christ Jesus. And it was the response in verse 37 of disbelieving man. Also in our text, again, that discusses Lazarus, the most relatable character to the born-again believer. We read in verse 25 and 26, Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, Yes, shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This is the question that is before us even today. Do you believe this? Amen. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? That even four days. You think about, think about what the Lord can do in four days. He created everything in six. But we as mankind would stand before him and say four days is too long. If you'd have but been here, my brother would have lived. If you'd have but been here, we could have avoided all this heartache. Do we not deserve to hear and respond with, if you'd have but been faithful, if Adam would have kept the temple there at the garden, if you all would have just listened, if you would have been faithful through and through, maybe he'd show us his hands. He's not as we are. Though we deserve to be put in our places at times, he's not as we are. He wouldn't uh, discuss such things with us in such a, uh, a throwaway manner. But Christ Jesus suffered way more than we're ever going to suffer in this life. And he did it, as we read here, gladly. 
for the benefit of his people. May we be humbled by what we read here. Not probably too many in the room are a Mary or a Martha in this chapter. Most of us probably fall in the category of those whalers who say, didn't he have a reason he could have kept this guy alive? He did all these things, supposedly. Couldn't he have enabled Lazarus to avoid death? Martha and Mary both sought after Jesus. This is what we are to do in our trials, seek after Jesus. Won't you come? Won't you come, Lord, to this scenario, to this situation, to this great need? Won't you visit, Father? Won't you send a man a blessing? And we're asking of one who can do exceeding abundantly more than we could ever hope or ask. We're asking of one that could make it rain blessings and has. Remember the manna. He desires our calling upon him. He desires our longing for his involvement. He doesn't make an example of Mary and Martha here. Those conversations, if you look at the text between both of them, in verse 32 and verse 21, they were private. Private conversations that no doubt were given to John as an illustration of what the Lord had done during his ministry so it could be recorded for us. But they were private conversations when they said, if you, if you would have been here, if you'd have been here, he didn't go to humiliate them. But beloved, humbling has a synonym. Humiliating. It hurts sometimes. To need Jesus like Mary and Martha did, they knew there was no other hope. They knew there was no other source. They knew there was no other relief. Oh Lord Jesus, won't you come? To which Jesus responds, Don't you believe? Don't you have faith in me? These are the promises that are laid out for those who believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believe in me, if believeth in me continues to believe in me. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. May we be mindful of the promises of the Lord Jesus.